0: Ultimately talking about vaccination, but that may go into a different podcast. The principles of vaccination are that essentially you are trying to kid your immune system into believing that you have an infection without having all the nasty side effects of an infection, and in doing so, what happens is, is that you create a memory for that infection. This is Most people think that vaccination is something like giving an antibiotic, where you're actually giving a a sort of a medicine that's going to fight uh, the germ you're being inoculated against for you, when in actual fact, what it is, is training your immune system to work for you. And it's based on the fact that you do create an immunological memory. Now, an immunological memory, apart from being a mouthful, is the hallmark of your adaptive immune response, that's your B cells and your T cells, where you every time that you re-encounter an antigen or a protein or a pathogen against which you have had a primary immune response, the secondary encounter and any re-encounter is always enhanced compared to the first one. So it's it's a better thing. Now, the first time there was a proper documented um, sort of understanding of immunization, well, not immunization, but immunological memory, was in 1781, and that was a sort of to do with a measles outbreak in the Faroe Islands. However, as early as 200 BCE, um, it has been documented that the Chinese were sort of uh, grinding up smallpox and sort of people were snorting it essentially as a form of inoculation against smallpox. And smallpox has been one of those diseases which we now no longer see because of a, of a vaccination. Program that was when became global, and we were able to wipe it out. But it was it's such a devastating disease that essentially um, people were inoculating against uh, smallpox thousands of years ago. But the the one I'm going to talk about is the one that people um, know most commonly, which is uh, in 1781, and. On the Faroe Islands, there was a measles outbreak and that affected between 75 and 95% of the population. So it's pretty much everyone. Then in 1846, that 75 years later, there was another measles outbreak. And a man called Ludwig Panum described how the infection spread. It spread from person to person. And he noticed how those who were affected the first time in 1781, none were attacked the second time now the reason he noticed this is because normally when you have a very virulent virus coursing through your population it generally picks off the old the vulnerable the weak and the 75 year old and older people were all surviving so uh, this is why i suppose you would end up noticing this more than normal and so the immunity to measles is really long-lived what that tells you is that, wow, you can have it once when you're a kid and it will outlive you if it, if it could. And the other thing is, is that you don't need to re-expose yourself to the virus to maintain long-term protective immunity. So what is actually happening? You're within immunological memory. You get changes occur. You have a primary response. That's the one where you have your B cells and your T cells and antibodies produced, raising and fighting an infection, like normal, right? However, what happens is is that during that time when you have this this reaction to a sickness where you have your adaptive immune response, there is um, an increased production of cells that are are the same specificity to whatever your B cells and T cells are fighting called memory cells. And these have capacity for long-term survival and enhanced responsiveness. So your memory cells themselves are slightly different than your B cells and your T cells. So you have memory B cells, you have memory T cells. And what you find is that when you have memory cells responding to an infection, there are more of them available. Their frequency is higher than those naive cells that are first raised against something. These ones are, you know, memory. They are more efficient at recognizing uh, antigens and being sort of activated. There's a thing that um, when you have your B cells and T cells, there's a level of co-activation quite a few little steps before those B cells and T cells can become fully activated. And your memory cells can sort of not need some of those steps. So they don't need co-stimulatory molecules. Some of them may not need co-stimulatory molecules signals for activation. You find that when they are activated, they are rapid and effective in their migration to tissues and lymph nodes and they express homing chemokine receptors which gives them the capacity to really respond well to chemokines in addition to which not only do they do all of that they are better they are qualitatively and quantitatively good they are better they have a better function so they produce better quality and more cytokines that's the t-cells and they're also obviously longer lasting So when you have your normal response, your naive cells, these can live for a few days, a few months even, whereas your memory cells persist for years. Now, I've also talked previously about a skin graft in the the context of major histocompatibility complexes. And the fact that you can give someone a skin graft and if you don't match your um, skin graft, their MHCs, your T cells will essentially completely obliterate and annihilate all of those donor cells if you're stupid enough to then do the same thing again given the first time it didn't work so we say oh it could have just been a fluke it didn't work let's give you another skin graft and you get your T cells uh, to obliterate the tissue a second time what you realize is that the process of completely annihilating this foreign tissue is actually quicker and in this instance, if you're going to do that, so the first time you raise an immune response against your skin graft, you repeat the process. You give a similar skin graft uh, from the same donor to the same recipient. You will get rid of that skin graft much, much, much more quickly because you've created memory T cells against that skin graft. So it doesn't. It's not only about infections. It can also include, um, you know, allografts and things from the same species as well. Whatever you raise an immune response against. will create a memory for it so in the context of this particular uh, podcast we're going to keep it simple Um, we're going to talk about immunological memory so we're going to talk about b cells and also t cells now one of the the easiest thing when we talk about b cells is to talk about the ultimately they will end up producing antibodies And so we're talking about antibodies that are produced following a primary antigen challenge. That's the first time you come into contact with something foreign. And the type of antibodies that you produce um, following a secondary antigen challenge. That means you've seen it more than once. And what you find is, as we've traditionally sort of explained with our adaptive immune response, when you first get your infection, your primary antigen challenge in this instance, uh, let's say at day zero, by about day five to six you, you you start, you begin producing antibodies and you get two different types of antibody, two different classes of antibody. One is the immunoglobulin M phenotype and that is one that looks a bit like a snowflake or a ninja star um, and it's essentially a pentamer. Or you have the, uh, following that, very shortly after that, you get the production of immunoglobulin G. And uh, immunoglobulin G looks like your traditional antibody shape, so like a twiglet in a Y shape sort of thing. And you find that your immunoglobulin M sort of peaks around seven to eight days, and your immunoglobulin G peaks uh, a bit later than that, about 12 days, approximately. Um, And, you know, you'll get sort of a certain sort of level of uh, immunoglobulin found in your blood now let's assume that you then the primary antigen challenge goes away so in the context of this is 2020 i'm recording this so in the context of covid let's say you get covid uh, theoretically what is supposed to happen is that the first time you get covid you will be producing lots of immunoglobulin m and immunoglobulin g and then you recover from COVID, and you what we'll find is that the antibody levels will go down, but they won't completely decrease, and there will always be levels, and that's how you can measure those antibody titers in your blood to see if you have had a response to COVID, is that people measure the levels of antibodies against COVID in your circulation. And uh, ultimately, they'll decrease, but they won't completely disappear. They'll still be there in your circulation. If, however, you're unfortunate enough to then be re-exposed to the antigen or the protein or the virus in this instance, we're using COVID as an example, you will get um, a immune response and it won't take six to seven days. We're gonna say maybe it's gonna take two to three days for you to suddenly get a beginning in increases in your antibody levels and your B cells would have been switched on much more quickly, turned into plasma cells much more quickly. Plasma cells, you get memory plasma cells, I think, I'm quite sure you do, Uh, and these produce uh, antibodies as well. So you also get memory plasma cells. So what you find is that within a few days, rather than a longer period, following the secondary antigen challenge, you get a much greater um, immune response. And this time, you see that the uh, levels of antibodies that are in your blood increase really, really, really quickly. So much they, they are initiated to be produced much more quickly. And to reach um, uh, sort of the level that they were previously, it takes no time at all. And in fact, what you do is you get a greater production of those antibodies than you do the first time. And they tend to be of the immunoglobulin G phenotype. So this secondary response is quicker, it's greater, and it's initiated more quickly. So how is it that B-cell memory is created? Well, you have a naive B-cell. These are the sort of cells that you have floating around. Um, And with CD4 help and an antigen, you get an activated B-cell. The activated B-cell, in the presence of uh, different um, cytokines, develops into a plasma cell. And the plasma cell is this huge, great cell that produces antibodies. That's quite straightforward. What you find is that a proportion of your activated B cells will also um, populate and clonally proliferate into loads and loads and loads of um, B cells at the same time as some of them are making plasma cells, right? So your B cells will proliferate, make plasma cells. Of those Large of that large production of B cells being produced, you will get some germ cells. From that population of activated B cells and germ cells, you can also get memory B cells, which are of a sort of germ cell lineage. And you can also get long-lived plasma cells. And then upon reexposure to antigen, you will get um, short or long-lived p- p- plasma cells, we believe, and um, memory B cells and it sort of goes on and on and on so every time you get a reignition of your um, b cell and its activation and plasma cells you'll get another production of more b cells more germ cells more things like that and these this is current i mean this is this is obviously subject to tweaking and alteration but these are the theories as they currently are so there are three phases to t cell Memory. The first is an expansion phase where the initial activation and clonal expansion of CD8 T cells occur. Then you get a contractional death phase where 90 to 95% of your activated CD8 T cells die, and that's a mechanism of apoptosis. And then finally, you have the establishment and maintenance of your CD8 T cell memory. So, what happens is, is there will always be a sort of a ticking over low level of these memory T cells um, somewhere in your body. So when you are an antigen-stimulated naive T cell, that's a T cell that's been stimulated by something, you have two potential outcomes. One is you can become effective and a memory cell, or you can be deleted and you can die. And whether you are going to be deleted and die, or you are going to differentiate into this effector and memory cell, it, that depends on the strength of your antigen and your cytokine stimulation that you receive. So what this means in sort of to you and me is that when you get sick and you have a certain amount of virus or you have a certain amount of antigen present, you need to have enough to get your T-cells really uh, being activated. You can't have too much, you can't have too little, you need to have enough so that they are stimulated to differentiate into these effector and memory cells. If you don't have enough of a stimulation, you might find that what happens is you end up uh, with those T cells being deleted. So one theory is is that if you have um, a weak stimulation so you don't have very much virus there. and You have a slight thing, you get over it in no time at all. Your T cells sort of expand, but they're not very fit and they die off. If you have a stronger stimulation, something that where you get sort of quite sick, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the normal two week flu type of thing, uh, you find that you will have a naive T cell and you'll have um, effector T cells, which will become memory cells Um, you will have just effector cells that are there, killing things. So what will happen is, if you have a strong stimulation, the majority of those cells will become effective killers. They'll go out and kill things. However, a smaller proportion of that, a percentage of that, will become uh, memory cells, effective and non-effective memory cells. And so once the antigen is cleared and you're feeling better, that's what you're left with. You're left with a proportion of that proportion, so you'll have those memory, effective and non-effective memory cells. So once you've gotten rid of your antigen cleared, you've got these memory cells left. So the fittest cells, they persist as those central memory cells, um, and you have this secondary response present, but you have a low immediate protection. If you have the third scenario, where you have a very, very strong stimulation, you have a persisting antigen, and the infection just won't go away it's the sort of condition where you have a cytokine storm you find that your t-cells 100 percent of them will de- differentiate into effector cells you won't have any cells where we'll say well let's just put you away for a rainy day and you can become a memory cell no everybody is going to be called into action so all the cells will differentiate into effector cells and this gives you a high immediate protection but <clears throat> it gives you no memory at all and eventually It will lead to exhaustion so that's the principle by which when we have an infection some of those cells will then become uh, a memory cell and this is the principle of vaccination vaccination works on the premise that if you can trick your body into thinking that it has had an infection so you have an activated uh, t-cell and you have uh, the production of memory cells it has to be sufficient Uh, enough to sort of not too much, you don't want to kill you and not too little. It needs to be just right somewhere in the middle where you can con your immune system into producing memory cells that the next time when you have the real infection your body will be able to fight it. That's the principle of vaccination and that has been going on um, you know, in in human civilization now for a few thousand years. And I think we give credit to the the ancient Chinese for, for doing that. So thanks for listening to this podcast on primary and secondary immune responses. Join me for my next podcast, which will talk a little bit more about vaccination.